This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, as you just heard Doug describe Walmart, certainly catching attention because, well, it's Walmart and we pay attention to what they say about the health of the consumer, the health of the world and some of those geoeconomic to geopolitical concerns as well. Let's get into it with Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg. He's here with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and Jennifer Bartashas. She is senior U.S. retail staples and restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton. Matt, let me start with you. We got the numbers from Doug, but what jumped out at you as you were synthesizing this? You know this company so well. Give us the nuance here. Well, that's the thing. It's the synthesis that matters here. I mean, we first saw the top line numbers, the sales beat. They raised guidance for like, okay, this is going to be another good quarter for Walmart. But as the day wore on, as you can see now, the shares are down. And it's a combination of some old concerns and some new ones. The old ones, of course, are uh, gross margins. All these wonderful things Walmart's doing online, next day delivery, sending groceries even into your house, you know, be delivered in your fridge while you're at work. These are all great, but they're very expensive. Right. So profitability, gross margins were down again this quarter. But then there's some new concerns. You've got a management reshuffle. You have no leader right now at their Sam's Club warehouse division, their Costco copycat. And uh, Sam's Club had a really poor quarter. Sales missed. Profit was down. So you've got some new concerns as well. We're heading into the holiday season. You know, everybody needs to be at the top of their game. Right. So people were looking to poke some holes and it looks like they found some. Well, Jennifer, while investors might be poking some holes, your smart note says that Walmart continues to invest in the long run at the expense of near term earnings. And this is the right approach in your view. Why? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, long term, you know, Walmart has, has if, if they want to be competitive long term, especially against um, rising competitors and, and the Amazon.coms of the world, then the investment in the, uh, the structure and the infrastructure and the business to build an e-commerce business is a necessary evil. Um, and that is weighing down on short term earnings. And everybody sort of expected that. Um, you know, Matt makes a great point that gross margin, you know, is, is still remains a concern, but it's not a new concern. Um, and instead, you know, I think one of the other things that is coming out of today's earnings is just the idea that the e-commerce growth that Walmart is seeing is right now heavily skewed to food. Um, and investors, you know, over time would like to see a greater dependence on merchandise, which is higher margin, to help make that business a little bit uh, less of a drag on the rest of the entity. And so, Matt, as you look ahead, especially to the next few months, what does Walmart need to do? What are the proof points that may get investors a little bit more yeah. on side? Well, here? it's not just what they need to do. It's what they need to stop doing. Um, they've stopped making these acquisitions of small, you know, digitally native sites, things like Bonobos, ModCloth, 
Moose Jaw. That was a key element of Mark Lord. So many Lord's. of those just sound made up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like we're in you know. some like dystopian uh, science fiction retail. Well, book. the jobs that some of them are seem to be made up these days yeah. because they're selling, they've already sold Mod Cloth, uh, Jet Black, which was a very expensive experiment in uh, sort of text-based uh, commerce. Um, we've told, we've uh, heard is, uh, you know, on the block. Um, so they're going to be stopping making those acquisitions. What they need to start doing is selling more apparel, selling more home goods, things that target their rival is very, very right. good at and has done for years. Walmart is trying to get deeper into those two categories, but it's just, but it's a stretch. You know, when you think of cheap, you know, cheap chic, you think of Target, not right. Walmart. You know, Jennifer, I understand that investors don't like the lower margin e-grocery business, except this appears to be the one area where Walmart is leading Amazon. Amazon has to play catch up in the grocery space. They're going out, they're trying to build a brick and mortar grocery store because that curbside pickup feels like it's starting to become more popular than the grocery delivery that Amazon is known for. Why not double down, in Walmart's case, on that e-grocery delivery because it feels like they are such a leader in that space? Well, I will say, I don't think Walmart's really slowing down on on grocery or e-grocery. They're continuing to expand the number of stores where you can do click and collect or the number of locations that will deliver uh, to people's homes. Um, But you're right, it is a competitive advantage that I think they want to be defensive about. Um, And so it's it's great that it's, it's, it's booming so much for them. And when you look at Walmart versus Amazon, in terms of like geographic distribution, the you know, Amazon does does well enough when you're talking about urban areas where lots of people don't own cars and they want to have things delivered to their house, including groceries. But the power of click and collect is that it really uses the store base to really get to mainstream non-urban America, and those consumers are responding as well. Uh, it's just that over time, you'd like to see the the overall e-commerce balance um, pick up a little bit more in the non-food side as well. All right, we're going to leave it there. Lots more to look at with Walmart. Never an easy or a straightforward story in many ways, owing to its size, scope, and importance around the world, certainly here in the United States. Jennifer Bartashis is Senior U.S. Retail Staples and Restaurants Analyst for BI. She joined us on the phone from Bloomberg Intelligence Headquarters in Princeton. And Matthew Boyle, Matt Boyle, U.S. Retail Reporter for Bloomberg, here with me in New York City. All right, let's head down to Baltimore. Dr. Josh Sharfstein joins us. He is Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement and the Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. And as you can probably tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, of course, the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg LP being the parent of Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Radio. Dr. Sharfstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So we talk a lot uh, about the opioid crisis from many different angles. It's an economic story. It's obviously a very important social and, and really human story. Give us a sense of where we are right now. And as you look back, maybe we start there. What could we have done to essentially prevent this in some cases? What's the lesson that we learn here? Well, I think there, there are a few lessons. This is a crisis that is now largely responsible for the reduction in life expectancy over the last three years, which is the first time that's happened since World War I and the great influenza. And so it's having this enormous impact in communities of all kinds across the country. Um, there are probably a few different points in time where intervention would have made a difference. Most recently for this current version, the 
huge uh, increase in prescribing of opioids for pain was a major factor. And the fact that it took a long time for the medical community to wake up to the fact that the culture of medicine in a way changed and doctors were prescribing four or five times what they've been prescribing before and a lot of patients got in trouble. So, doctor, I'm out here in San Francisco and we talk about big data and data privacy and it sounds great, but it does bring up a lot of concerns. What is your solution to fold data into the conversation about how now to help the problem? Well, I think there have been a couple great examples of states that are using data to identify the risk factors for overdose and, more importantly, in my mind, the opportunities to intervene and help people. So. I'd call out Massachusetts and Maryland. Massachusetts did a a great um, big data project where they merged in their data from corrections with the data from the healthcare as well as um, data from uh, fatalities from the coroner, medical examiner. And what they found, for example, was that people who had been incarcerated were at over 100 times the risk of dying of an overdose when they got out compared to the general population. But when those same people were given treatment with medications, there was a dramatic drop in their risk of death. The Maryland data has found that the highest risk individuals for overdose death are people who have actually been in the emergency room and the hospital as well as had contact with the criminal justice system. And what I think makes both of those findings very interesting is that by and large, hospitals, the medical community and jails have failed to provide life-saving treatment. They often don't offer it to people who need it. And I think big data analyses are sort of a wake-up call to the medical community and to criminal justice that every contact with someone is an opportunity, actually, to, to get people into effective care. Uh, Dr. Sharfstein, it's interesting, you know, as we think about the solutions here, I spent yesterday at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum on a security, in a security summit, and, you know, one of the continuous themes there was this cooperation between the, the public side and the private sector, and a lot of what it sounds like you're talking about does rely on a, a public sector solution in many ways, but also uh, private industry coming in. How does that work? How does it happen? in your estimation? So the Massachusetts analysis I mentioned was actually done with in a consortium, a public-private consortium. Dr. Monica Burrell is the commissioner of health in Massachusetts, and um, she brought in um, with the governor a number of tech companies to help them really do the right analysis. I'll be honest with you. There are some clouds on the horizon in this big data world. There's, you know, sometimes I think companies will take data and they'll show up and say, you know, let's tell the doctor the percentage chance that the person right in front of them is going to overdose and maybe they won't prescribe something. Those things, I think, might be a little bit fraught. I'd like Mm -hmm. to see the public-private partnership where the public sector can actually pause and say, like, is this a good idea? You know, will this make the care better or worse? And you have sort of uh, the the technology and the skills from the private sector, but kind of the judgment and the, the sense of the overall problem that the public sector brings. What about HIPAA violations and data privacy rules? Well, um, most of these analyses um, are done at an aggregate level, so you're not using the individual's names. Um, there, are, there is the risk, though, um, of course, that data systems can be compromised, and it's very important that when analyses are being done that you know, there are a lot of data security standards. For me, the core question is, is the um, analysis that's going to be done you know, conceived of correctly, and is it going to be helpful to people? You know. For example, I'm aware of some 
you know, ideas where people say, like, well, if somebody's had a problem, you know, with being arrested years in the past, then we won't ever give them an opioid again. Well, that could backfire in a lot of different ways. The person may really be in pain and need treatment, or and if they don't get it, they may go out and have to use, you know, drugs on the street right. and be at much greater risk of death. So I really think the key is, um, you know, not just following the law, but having a really good idea, and I think it's the public-private partnership there that, that can make sure that we steer away from the, the bad ideas. All right. Well, it's a great overview, and we appreciate the context so much. Thank you. Dr. Josh Sharfstein, he is Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement and the Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. He joined us on the phone from Baltimore. Little what you see is what you get. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the market from a macro level, and then we're going to go down a level with George Schulte. He is the founder of Schulte Asset Management. He's based up in Rybrook, New York, just up the New Haven line, I believe, from us here in New York City. He joins Taylor Riggs and myself. So, George, great to see you. Great to be here again. Thank you. All right, so this market... You know, I feel like we're trying to now make some sense of it as we get closer to the end of the year. As you sort of look back over 19, what's your takeaway so far? Well, it's been quite a quite a phenomenal amount of growth. I mean, this has been going on for 11 years now. Yeah. And so you have, uh, you know, kind of an uncertain situation, though. I think Powell's struggling with it, with uh, extremely low interest rates, stubbornly low inflation. Um, but there's still quite the you know amount of uh, monetary accommodation going on in the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of fiscal policy accommodation as well. Um, you have the unemployment rate uh, close to a 50-year low um, at about 3.6%. You have growth in the U.S. at about 1.9%. I guess a little bit soft in the last quarter due to the uh, GM strike and some weakness in business investment. Um, but, but again, inflation stubbornly low, uh, still below 2%, mm-hmm. at 1.7%. Um, and I think that's why uh, Powell, you know, is continuing to put his foot down on the accelerator. You know, George, uh, it's Taylor Riggs. I'm out here in San Francisco covering all things technology. So what I'm doing is I'm going around and asking everyone I know in New York the same poll question to t- try to get my head wrapped around the, the real story. I've been covering tech. Let's pretend I've been ignoring everything else. Tell me what is driving the markets right now. Is it Powell, impeachment, earnings? What have I missed? So I think one of the big things that's driving tech is is just you know money inflows into the massive ETFs that, that are forced to buy the largest growing companies. Um, I think there's also a you know a wave of new cash still flooding into the fixed income market. And I think that is probably creating some risks because I think companies are probably borrowing a little bit more than they should be at this point in the cycle. I think it's a function of interest rates being so low and investors desperate for fixed income yield. And I think because of that, you're seeing some some interesting things in the tech space, like with WeWork. I mean, that company probably shouldn't be borrowing money, but you know, it's able to or was able to to borrow money up until now, even though uh, by all means it looks like it's probably an insolvent enterprise. Right. Um, so there, there, there are some very unique uh, things happening in the market because interest rates are really so low. They're as low as they've been in the history of the planet. Right. Um, and this past summer, of course, we saw uh, negative yielding debt uh, reach $17 trillion. That's never, been, that's never happened before in the history of the world. So I think what it's generating is the risk of asset bubbles. And uh, hopefully 
uh, as some of those unwind, you won't have systemic risk or systemic you know, fallout that could cause a real shock. So I know part of your background, and you never fully leave this world as special situations, distress. Uh, not a lot of distress, it feels like, in the world at the moment, but there are always special situations. And one of them uh, that I believe you've looked at is actually right there in Taylor's backyard, which is PG&E, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. How do you look at a name like that? So a lot of people say, by the way, with, with regard to distress, that there's not much going on, but I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Okay. Because if you look at the default rate, which uh, a lot of the major investment banks that like to sell high yield bonds, um, it really just measures junk rated debt default rates. And that's, that's, it's below 3%. But here you have PG&E, which is one of the 10 largest bankruptcies of all time. And it's active right now. Um, I think, by the way, just parenthetically, you know, some of the other California utilities might be at risk, too, because of, you know, the terrible wildfires right. we've had out there. But, yeah, the way we look at that is just like any other distressed credit. Uh, we look at the company's capital structure. In this case, because it has so much litigation liability, you can throw in about 25, maybe even as high as 30 billion of additional claims into the capital structure, and then try to value the business on an unlevered basis and, and, and try to figure out where in the pecking order, uh, you know, the lenders or, the, or maybe even the equity owners would get a recovery. In this case, we think that uh, ultimately, there have been you know, a number of plans of reorganizations proposed. Um, there's been a lot of litigation back and forth about who has control over the case. Recently, the judge gave the bondholders uh, approval to file a plan, and their plan looks like it dilutes the equity holders down to nearly nothing, which is actually typically what happens yeah. with bankrupt companies. So, so we think short-selling the PG&E stock uh, just under $7 a share makes a lot of sense for a potential 100% return. That's probably the lowest risk way to play this. Um, and, and, and separately, of course, you know, the situation in California with forest fires and new fires even after the bankruptcy, it's, it, it's really terrible. And, uh, you know, we hope they figure it out out there. George, reading through your recommendations, you talk about stock buybacks and special dividends and or m and I'm taking a look at a chart here and it's the Invesco buyback ETF. So they invest in companies that have bought back at least 5% of their shares in the last few years. And that's outperforming the dividend ETF, which invests in companies that have consistently raised their dividend over the last 10 years. Why are companies that are doing share buybacks outperforming companies that are raising their dividends? That's a good question, and that's an interesting observation about uh, it outperforming. I think that that makes sense in, in my view because uh, essentially, you know, companies are making the decision to buy back their own stock when they think it's cheap, and the result for remaining shareholders who do, do not sell into that buyback, whether it's sort of a program or, or a special one-time buyback, is that you reduce the float outstanding, and the, and the smaller universe of shareholders can share the same cash flow that you had before. All other things equal. Um, so it also happens to, you know, it tends to put a you know, sort of a, a bottom on, on, a, on a stock that might be volatile. And so I think management teams and, and boards that are deciding to do that, in many cases, it's the right thing because they're reducing float that, uh, you know, that, that really they don't need. It's a, it's a higher form of or a higher cost of capital, uh, certainly, than you can get in the fixed income market these days. And if you're under levered, meaning, you know, you're not even investment grade, like you have hardly any debt at all, this might be a great way to use your capital. Right. All right. Always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much for coming in. George Schultze is founder of Schultze Asset Management based up in Rybrook, New York, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Oh, let's get back to the no, 
All right, so the cover story this week in Bloomberg Business Week, it's a must read. And once you read it, I guarantee you're going to be talking about it. Ashley Vance wrote it. He is a writer, a host, an author, so many things here at Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And I have to say, Ashley, when I first read this story, I did to quote my co-host Carol Masser a, wait, what? sort of moment. How did this even come onto your radar screen? Well, you know, I've, I've been covering open source for about 20 years, and uh, and I got a call from GitHub, which is, is kind of the biggest platform for where open source code gets made these days, and, and they told me they had this crazy idea to go bury the world's uh, source code in, in Svalbard, and, and I managed to talk my way into to seeing it. <laughs> so, Ashley, what was it like? I think you told me yesterday it was literally like a storage shed. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they had sent us some photos beforehand of uh, artist mock-ups of what this thing would look like. It was very sci-fi and, and fantastic. And when I got there, no, I mean, you know, we were down in a abandoned coal mine that used to be owned by a Norwegian company. It was covered in permafrost and hiked our way through it, and there was this tool shed sitting there um, with these, these fancy reels of, uh, of film and storage. So, so Ashley, uh, they're not the only ones who have stashed uh, something in, in a cave nearby. There's also this followed by a uh, global seed vault where in the event of an apocalypse, hey, uh, I'll go there and find some seeds. Uh, but the, the thinking here is that, you know, this is a place that should anything really, really go wrong in the world... Uh, we can stash things, and why open source? Why why would that be the we have seeds and open source? Why would open source code be the second thing we'd need to stash? Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny, you know. Like twenty years ago, open source was sort of uh, a fringe idea. Software was dominated by companies like Microsoft and IBM. Um, but you know, in the intervening twenty years, it's it's the dominant way now that that code gets developed. It's Open source is behind pretty much everything you use in your day-to-day life, whether it's the smartphone, your computer, your television, your car. You know, every piece of our infrastructure um, is, is developed by partly paid coders that do work for big companies, but also all these volunteers. And so the idea here is, look, um, say something just crazy happens and the modern infrastructure is brought to its knees, you would actually have kind of a backup of how these things work. Well, and it is so interesting, and uh, Ashley, when you think about it, and I'm glad you mentioned the the idea of sort of covering open source for two decades, because two decades ago, it was like, all right, cool, like, yeah, you guys are kind of out there on the fringes, but maybe you don't get the joke about how software is written and who controls it, but now this is, I, I think, accepted, not just accepted, but heavily endorsed and has really changed the way the world works in many ways. Yeah, and the funny thing about it, just reflecting, they wrote this story, was, you know, like 20 years ago, Microsoft was the enemy. It was all about making an open source version of, of an operating system to compete against Windows and competing against Office and things like that. Um, the sort of, like, strange thing happened, which is none of that worked when <laughs> the Linux desktop never became mainstream. But all these open source coders who were fighting this fight made these incredible tools for sharing software on the internet, developing it, and 
you know, the knock-on effect was that, that open source became the backbone of the Internet, of smartphones, and so they sort of won these two other wars, um, which is really where technology was heading rather than where it had been. And so, right. you know, today, if it's Google, if it's Netflix, if it's Uber, Amazon, whoever, you know, their infrastructure runs on open source code. So here's the irony, Ashley. You've been doing this for 20 years. You show up at this vault with the CEO of GitHub, now owned by Microsoft, one of the very companies that was like, never will we touch open source. How ironic is that? I mean, it's it's the cra- it's one of the craziest parts of the crazy story. You know, if you had asked me 20 years ago if this was ever going to happen, I would have said it's impossible. I remember Steve Ballmer on stage calling open source software cancer and, and uh, you know, giving away your code was just seen as sort of almost a criminal act by Microsoft. And, you know, last year they bought GitHub for $7.5 billion and obviously threw, threw their lot in with the open source crowd. And, um, you know, it's just it's, it's an incredible happening. I think a lot of right. it has to do with Satya Nadella coming on as CEO and sort of thinking differently about these things. What a different a couple of decades so, makes. Ashley. Yeah, last question, Ashley. If I need to get there, how do I get there? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, the easiest way, you got to take a couple hops, but you can. There are, there's like one or two flights per day from Norway, and I think it's about a two-hour flight. Hey. Um, and there's, there's like 2,000 people that live in Svalbard. I hope you left breadcrumbs for me. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. It's a great story. It's the cover of this week's new issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Ashley Vance wrote it. He went there and wrote all about it. He joined us from Palo Alto, Joel Weber, here with me in New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Ron Carson back with us, CEO of the Carson Group, looking after about $11.5 billion. He joins us on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Ron, great to have you with Taylor and myself. Hey, it's great to be here. All right. All right, so... I'm going to ask you a variation of a very good question that Taylor asked earlier, which is, as you look across the the landscape here, how do you sort of rank the things to either worry about or pay the most attention to? You know, you sort of think about geopolitics, you think about trade, you think about the Fed, you think about earnings. Like, what's your sort of list of priorities here? (laughs) Well, I think you nailed them all. I mean, uh, the thing that I think it's going to drive them more. I was just with a, I'm actually in uh, Sarasota, Florida right now. I was just with one of our, our clients and he said, Hey, what's going to happen next year? I said, I have no idea. And so he pushed me. He said, well, what are the things you're going to worry about? And said, well, you know, right now, I think the bigger, the market's going to start to focus, start handicapping the election. And, you know, one extreme, you know, president Trump gets reelected. I think the, it's going to be pretty good for the market. Um, but I don't think he's going to get reelected unless we get, you know, a real yeah, a trade deal 
Um, on the other hand, if Elizabeth Warren were to become our next president, it's going to be really bad for the markets. So I think really as we look into the future here, the market's going to start to handicap those things. Of course, we've got Brexit and we've got, you know, the Fed out there and we've got China trade, which seems to be, you know, moving the markets every day. Um, but I would I would really, really start thinking about who's going to be in office um, with the next uh, election cycle. So we talk about handicapping the next election and yet equities are near their all time highs. What gives? Well, I think the markets are telling you that they think um, Trump's going to be, be be reelected. And, you know, as, as the markets handicap it right now, this market's been really resilient. Um, and I think the market loves the fact that um, we've got, you know, Powell out there saying, hey, you know, we really don't have anything that we're too worried about right now. This is sustainable. On that note, I will share with you, not the last Fed meeting, but the Fed meeting before, I just so happened that same evening after they voted, had dinner with one of the voting members. And, um, and my concern was then that, hey, are we, do we really understand all the variables and all the things that, that, that could trip us up? And he made a great uh, point in that, you know, we really are on top of all of this. And, you know, I saw it also on a different article today. The U.S. is still the reserve currency of the world. You know, we have $23 trillion. A lot of people got to own um, the dollar. They got to participate here. And I think that also is, is going to provide a floor, you know, for the market for a while. So, Ron, very much top of mind for us today. We did a whole segment on it earlier in the show was Walmart. You know, we saw those numbers come out. Obviously, Walmart, a bellwether in some ways across retail, across, uh, you know, e-commerce as well, as, as Taylor rightly pointed out earlier in the show, a sign of consumer demand, a sign of trade tensions being there or not there. How do you read it and how does that maybe affect? your outlook, especially when it comes to the consumer and retail? Yeah, the consumer is strong and the consumer continues to be strong. You know, we had the employment report was better than expected. I noticed claims were a little higher um, today than the market thought. But, you know, companies like Walmart, um, I think, tells us just how, how, how strong the consumer is. And we love Walmart. I mean, attractive offering in here continues to pressure you know, the tier two and tier three retailers, and it's making significant strides into the e-commerce business. And this is a good example, and pays a nice dividend yield. You know, you're getting a 180, maybe a hair less than a 180 yield, uh, which in today's environment is pretty good. And, and so I think being surgical is going to be really key here. You know, really understanding why you're owning what you're owning. And as Buffett says from my very own Omaha, Nebraska, you know, we're buying companies or businesses at an intrinsic value to their, to what, to what we believe their value is, and I think just buying the whole market is probably not the approach most investors should take here, but be more surgical. So, if you are becoming more of a stock picker, be more surgical, really knowing what you're buying. Let's say you want to get a little bit defensive here. I was reading a report by UBS, and they said uh, just on a pure valuation uh, basis at this point, when they're going within the defensive sectors, they're looking at healthcare over utilities. If you were to go defensive, where do you like companies within that space? Yeah, no, healthcare. I mean, we like a lot and healthcare. I mean, just look at the demographics, right? And how old we're getting. Um, Celgene was a great example of that. You know, we had a health Celgene in our portfolio for some time. 
Um, and of course, we're going to be taken out by Bristol Myers. But I think that you know, companies that are doing um, that. You know, another one that got hit really hard uh, on was Myriad uh, Genetics, MYGN. Uh, we think this is a really attractive entry point into into a company like that as well. But anything that's going to um, uh, provide, for example, with Myriad. You can get some testing done, get out ahead of you know, whatever your issues are, um, or providing like a cell gene uh, and their cancer therapy, something that's really going to enhance quality of life. So we, we, would be, we, we like healthcare in here. All right. Ron Carson is the CEO of Carson Group, overseeing about $11.5 billion. He joined us on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.